Brought to you by Bank of America, Merrill Lynch, investing in local communities, economies, and a sustainable future. That's the power of global connections. Merrill Lynch, Pierce, Fenner & Smith, Incorporated. Member SIPC. Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen with David Gura. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on iTunes, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. This is a joy. David Gura and Tom Keen in our radio studios on Finsbury Square, north of the city. We're sort of on the edge of the city. And tomorrow we're going to go take a tour of our new offices. We'll put on the hard hats and hard boots. Hat. Go look at the no skirts or dresses allowed. I was yeah, it's very strict. <laughs> it's like a whole strict thing about um, like taking a tour of it. But it's really coming together. Yeah, we hope within the year to be the largest London. stone building in London. I well, believe. I don't tell Parliament. That, I won't tell Parliament. But, um, that, but you know, it's going to be good near Mansion House, yep. uh, in the heart of the city, near the bank. Look for some Twitter photos. Why of Why don't you bring in I our think. good guest, who's uh, <laughs> dark in the door of Mansion House, any number of Very times, good. Mr. Barth. Marvin Barth here, head of European FX strategy at Barclays, joins us here uh, in our studios in London, uh, as Tom mentioned. And uh, Marvin, let me ask you just first of all: we're seeing a lot of anxiety play out here in the, the currency markets. Why is this the venue for it? Why Why are we seeing so much anxiety in currencies right now? Well, I think it's one of the uh, markets that touches every other market yep. is, is the key point. In fact, generally the way we look at uh, currencies is it is the market that clears all other markets, trade in goods and services, trade in financial services, whether it's uh, um, equities, uh, bonds, whichever. So <clears throat> it's one, one of the first ones that reacts um, to economic news from the trade side, but also financial flows clearly are um, the biggest driver. Uh, uh, and so that you can have much more significant reactions there. And then the final reason is, is that, frankly, it's the most liquid market out there. So it's the easiest one for people to express and hedge themselves. Tom has been playing uh, lepidopterist all week, talking about butterflies uh, since we got here, talking about emerging markets. Let me ask you about what we're seeing in Turkey this morning with the, with the Turkish lira. We had the, the central bank there intervening. Uh, what has caused uh, th that dramatic shift uh, in the lira over these last few days? Well, uh, it's, a, it's a continuation of the uh, political uncertainty uh, there and how the government uh, is going to look at uh, the banking system and their um, uh, dollar uh, loans and deposits, by the way, they have, they have, have both, um, what onshore residents are going to do with those, uh, and the continued political uncertainty as we go into the referendum, which will probably take place uh, in April. So all of those things have, have been sort of percolating for a while here, and this is just a further extension of that, particularly as we come into the uh, central bank meeting later this month. How does a strategist like you, how does an investor in currencies react to intervention like the kind we saw today? Does it, does it cheer you to see it? Uh, does it raise more concerns than it allays? Well, you know, I have uh, a unique experience. I used to work at the Federal Reserve um, in the foreign exchange, the global market section. And so I used to see intervention as it was happening. All the central banks would report to each other. And so I remember back in, you know, the early 2000s watching Japan jump or dump uh, several billion dollars at a time into the market and watch it just dissipate and evaporate like nothing. And so one of the things I've 
I've come away with is that foreign exchange intervention, unless it's accompanied by a real shift in policy, just doesn't work. Or you're at extremes. And I don't think you can claim that either of those are the case with Turkey right now. I mean, the headline on Turkey, folks, this goes to the cash spent. I'm going to use a, a working number that I may be wrong on, but I think it was $6 billion, uh, um, used by Mexico to support peso a year a few days ago. And the headline is there, Turkey's Erdem cites operation to rapidly depreciate lira. What the, I, I, that's lost in translation for me, David. Uh, Marvin, help me. What, what the hell does that headline mean? Uh, I think your guess is, is, is good. Thank you. Good okay. <laughs> I'm sure it's accurate. I mean, I don't, I don't you know, I, I don't mean to, I just, you know, you see the headlines come across the Bloomberg and you say, what, Turkish lira weaker right now, 377. Uh, but, um, you, you know, it's not blowing out to a weaker Turkish uh, lira right now. As you say, there's unilateral uh, depreciation or management of a currency, I should say. And the textbook says it just never, never, never works. Who's the elephant in the room for Turkey or Malaysia or the others right now? Is it the IMF or is it the United States? Well, I, I think in, in many of those cases, it's actually their own citizens, mm. right? Um, particularly in the case of, of Turkey, when you think about how much um, uh, Turkish citizens typically keep uh, in dollar accounts. And, you know, one of the interesting things about Turkey in the uh, sort of post-crisis period relative to the pre-crisis period is, uh, uh, you know, you remember the old days when the Turkish lira just went one direction, um, uh, when it even had a different currency <laughs> Code. Um, those uh, in those days, when you had anything like this, the uh, locals would immediately shift all their lira into dollars. Today, what you're seeing, or what you have seen in uh, the post-crisis period, is they've shown greater confidence in their own policymakers. And actually, when the lira um, dips down to low levels like this, they've come back and bought. Uh, but that is the real question right now. That's the elephant in the room here, is in this incredible uncer political uncertainty, mm -hmm. is that going to continue to happen? Yeah. Thank you so much, Marvin Barth. Great to see you with Barclays giving us perspective today on foreign uh, exchange. Let's talk to Paul Mortimer Lee now. He's chief economist at BNP Paribas, joining us by phone. Paul Mortimer Lee, great to speak with you here this morning. Joining us here, thanks very much for your time. Today. And let's right, pick pleasure. up from what we were talking about a few moments ago. We were talking about trade. Uh, Boris Johnson, the foreign secretary, visiting the U.S. Uh, some senators talking about the relationship between the U.S. and the U.K. Let's talk about U.S. trade policy first year. How big a weight is that as you forecast out growth uh, in the U.S. going forward? Well, I, we don't really know what's going to happen with trade policy. I think that's the, there's a major uncertainty about whether we'll see uh, very big moves or whether we'll see a more piecemeal piecemeal approach. Um, I, th I think what we, we probably will see is some renegotiation of some trade deal, uh, and therefore probably not um, a big surge in protectionism. But I think it's a worry, and uh, very probably it's dampening um, investment in some parts of the world in emerging markets who are thinking about, are they going to have problems exporting to the U.S. in, in the future? Uh, and I think it is an uncertainty that will weigh somewhat on, on business. If we were to see major protectionist 
uh, moves by the U.S., then uh, we'd have to revise down our U.S. growth forecast, and we'd have to revise up our inflation forecast in the U.S., uh, because clearly, um, if we're sourcing it currently from outside the U.S. and we source it, that's because it's cheaper. And so if there is protectionism, inflation is going to go up, and that will add to the risk uh, that the Fed's tightens policy more than it's currently planning. And what's your growth forecast right now? Well, you know, we we think we think growth is going to be pretty strong uh, this year. Um, we're going to be up around the two and a half, two and a half mark. I think it depends on how much we get um, uh, a fiscal boost. That will more probably affect uh, 2018. Uh, what we are seeing at the moment, and we saw this this morning with the uh, National Federation of Independent Business uh, Optimism Index, which surged for the, the most since 1980. We're seeing a huge surge in optimism in businesses and in consumers. What's not clear is how much that's going to spill through to spending, either in CapEx or in consumer spending. Uh, The consumer credit numbers uh, this morning were were pretty strong, so there seems to be some evidence. And so I I think there's there's definitely a possibility Mm -hmm. uh, that we may be surprised on the upside by U.S. growth particularly in the first half of the year. Tom Keene and David Gurr. David? Yeah, Paul Morgan Lee with us, Chief Economist at BMP at Paribas. We were talking about trade, uh, economic growth uh, in the U.S. You were mentioning emerging markets, and I wonder which are the ones uh, that you see most likely to sort of feel pain going forward here. <laughs> to feel, what, to feel pain from trade or just generally? Yes, from, from trade in particular. From trade in particular, well, you don't worry about China and therefore... Uh, Southeast Asia. I mean, it's, you know, basically commodity exporters should be fine, right, because they're complementary to U.S. production. It's people who are producing, competing with U.S.-style production uh, that that need to be worried. And I think particularly those who've got big trade surpluses like China. Uh, And I think that's where the concern is, because so much of the U.S. deficit is with China. It's got to be a focus, and therefore all the economies that supply China in the region are linked to China uh, have got reason to be concerned where we're going, I think. When, when you look at uh, what this administration has pursued, it's been a pretty uh, strong strong dollar policy here over the last uh, eight years. Do we have indications here uh, that a, a President Donald Trump is going to pursue the same strong dollar policy? Well, I'm, I'm not convinced he will, because to some extent, the stronger the dollar, the more it's going to work against his... Um, his impetus to boost manufacturing in the U.S. Mm. And so I think, that, I think that is a concern. I mean, that might be one of the things why we've seen some Federal Reserve officials talking about uh, moving the balance mm-hmm. um, because uh, the exchange rate seems much more sensitive to short-term interest rates than to long-term rates. So if right. the tightening of monetary policy switches a little away from raising spot rates, raising the Fed funds, and towards running off the balance sheet, mm. that could allow the Fed to tighten but not damage the exchange rate and therefore manufacturing. You capture... I mean, I think that, no, sorry. Paul, go ahead, please. I didn't mean to interrupt. Excuse me. No, I, I was going to say, you know, that, I mean, I think there are, there are a number of other things that could push the, the exchange rate higher. You know, the, uh, uh, the cash-based... Um, um, uh, cash flow uh, based uh, corporate tax change uh, could could push the dollar higher. Um, we could see some repatriation uh, by corporates to the US mm-hmm. if that comes about, push the dollar higher. So I think, I think a too strong dollar is a threat uh, to President Trump's ambitions to boost manufacturing, definitely. 
You have a beautiful research headline which captures the emotion of so much of our listeners. Bond yields burning down the house. There's an innate fear. Price down, yield up, not good for me. Are we going to burn down the house? I, I don't think we're going to burn down the house. But, you know, we look back at 2013 when we had the taper tantrum and long bond yields went up by over 100 basis points. It definitely slowed the housing market very, very sharply. And we've seen um, not not far off the same backup in bond yields. And the question is, is that going to hurt the housing market this time? Now, I think there are quite a lot of differences now between uh, where we are and where we were in 2013. The unemployment rate is three, almost three percentage points lower for a start. Um, but I think we will see something of a setback. The lags back then were about six months. Uh, and I think we will see a, a slightly uh, slower pace, probably more of existing sales than new home sales. But uh, I don't think it's a massive threat to the economy. It might not knock 0.1, maybe 0.2 off growth as bond yields go, go higher. But the consumer is not using mortgage finance uh, in the same way as a decade ago to yeah. fuel consumption, for example. And so I, I think the, the economy is going to be pretty resilient to the higher bond yields. And the higher bond yields are really a reflection of good news or expected good news on the economy. Whereas back in 13, it just like, looked like the Fed was going to tighten without the good news yeah. coming. So yeah. this time, the economy should be less sensitive. David, this is fascinating. Mm. I mean, I, you know, mortgage equity withdrawal was a phrase of the year and the moment. Uh, shout out to Jan Hatzis at Goldman Sachs for his great work back then. But, uh, David, I just think this is a huge deal. We're, it's a new world of rising rates, uh, and we just don't know. A new world of, of rising rates and, and uh, a big opportunity here for potential conflict, I imagine, Paul Mortimer Lee, if you have the Fed going forward raising rates at the same time as you have uh, the Congress, expect the Congress here to pass a big fiscal stimulus and some tax reform. How thorny is this going to be? How difficult is it going to be to navigate uh, the economic landscape in Washington as you have uh, these two institutions, what, a mile and a half apart from each other uh, in Washington, uh, doing things that are sort of detrimental to each other? Well, I, I think it's going to be very tricky. It's going to be very tricky in particular for the Fed because I think, you know, the administration will say, look, you know, a lot of our stimulus is not just demand stimulus, it's supply stimulus. And if you guys raise rates too quickly and stop this process, you're going to squeeze out supply. And um, therefore, I think the administration is going to be putting quite a lot of pressure on the Fed not to overdo its tightening. Uh, but at the same time, the Fed's, I think the, the key thing for the Fed, therefore, will be how inflation and costs, including wages, evolve. Because um, strong demand, I think because of the, the arguments from the Trump administration on supply, it makes it quite difficult for the Fed to snuff out demand. But if they see inflation move higher, that's a bit easier. And so I think the Fed's reaction function is changing, and they're going to be more sensitive to inflation uh, signals than, than growth going forward, which is a kind of reverse of mm. where we were in the past year. I think that we get minutes from the ECB this week on, on Thursday from its last meeting, and I think when, when that happens, I'm going to open it up and do Control-F uh, for find and type in the word taper to see if it appears. Uh, what are you, what are you going <laughs> to be luck, looking good for? Luck good that. luck with that. Well, what are you going to be looking for those minutes, Paul? I think you've come out with a big zero there. Uh, yeah. Taper. I think that it's not tapering. It's just scaling back. I think there'll be oh, really? some disagreements. <laughs> yeah. yeah. 
I think there'd just be some there'd be some disagreement. Clearly, I think I think the Hawks um, probably wanted to have a shorter uh, extension of the uh, QE, and some of the Doves wanted a longer extension. Uh, and basically, we ended up with something of a compromise. I don't think they're very optimistic on growth. I think they think growth is pretty fragile. And I think their underlying picture on core inflation, although headlines moving mm. up, I don't think they have a big faith in terms of core mm. inflation shifting. But I think the message will continue to be to be dovish. I mean, mm. I think they did a great job in tapering. And the, they did taper, they did scale back, and yet the market interprets it as very dovish which is a huge contrast to what happened in 2013 with Ben Bernanke, yeah. if you remember. Yeah. So I, I, think, leave, I think they handled it pretty skillfully. I have to leave it there. Paul Mortimer Lee, thank you so much with BNP Paribas uh, in uh, New York. It's just a great set of opinions. And as usual, David, it centers around the view of someone and economic growth. Yeah, and we haven't so, had that dovetailing of the housing market into into it before. Well, so yeah, the housing market is a dovetail, but just on basic GDP, there's 2% versus those more optimistic. And, of course, that's what makes for the debate. Yeah, absolutely. Brought to you by Bank of America, Merrill Lynch, dedicated to bringing our clients insights and solutions to meet the challenges of a transforming world. That's the power of Global Connections. Merrill Lynch, Pierce, Fenner & Smith, Incorporated member, SIPC. What about Charles Dumont now? He is the chairman and chief economist at Lombard Street Research. Joining us here on the Spectrum Enterprise phone line. Optimistic last time. He was yes, optimistic he was last time. Cheerful. Joining us on the Spectrum Enterprise phone line, Spectrum Enterprise, nationwide fiber-based network and IT infrastructure uh, solutions. Charles, great to speak with you again. Yeah, nice to talk to you guys. <laughs> Very good. Does your optimism persist here? Uh, we, 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 uh, we heard the comments from Theresa May, Prime Minister, over the weekend. Uh, she refuting... Uh, observations that the Brexit process is muddled. What is your sense of, of how it's going at this point? Well, I think it's certainly muddled, but it was bound to be muddled. I mean, no one made any plans for Brexit. It was uh, the civil service was completely um, sideswiped by it, and um, and and now they're having to sort of get themselves together. Now, the other thing is that you can't really have a negotiation until the other side's in place, and um, the other side is not in place. I know the Commission is supposedly sitting there in Brussels with with negotiators sitting around waiting, but. Um, <laughs> The decisions can't really get made until the French elections happened and the German elections happened. So Mrs. May is not going to sort of show her hand uh, in any kind of um, detailed way uh, or even specify what she's aiming for until she can get a sense from them of what's feasible. And what's feasible is going to depend very much on how the um, sort of people in France and Germany who are skeptical about free movement of um, labor um, do in these elections. So um, the whole thing is um, a whole, whole sort of nexus of uncertainty, and um, people are just going to have to live with that for several months, I think. I just want to flag something here, Tom, that our colleague Francine Lockwood just sent us here. Uh, dollar Mexico falling to a fresh all-time low, 216227. Yeah. yeah, it was sudden and abrupt. I mentioned that out of Karen Moscow's data check, and we see that in the EM currencies. Let's rip up the script. Charles Dumas, we usually talk G7, G5, G1 uh, with you. Do you have a concern about erosion in currencies of emerging markets? Not really, no. I think that um, the emerging market currencies have, um, have uh, well, I mean, a year ago they got 
grossly oversold. A lot of these the economies are doing quite are doing quite well. Um, the the biggest um, issue for them clearly is what happens with the Chinese um, yuan, because if that goes down a long way, then of course um, that creates competitive pressure and difficulties. Um, but um, we don't think that that is going to happen. Um, starting from where we are now, which is in the sort of a low 690s for the for the yuan dollar. Uh, and so um, I don't see any particular reason why the emerging markets should feel themselves under particularly heavy pressure. Now, that's going to change um, according to which one you're looking at. I mean, the main thing that emerging markets have in common is that um, they're poorer than us. The other thing that's important is that uh, politics matter more than economics, or relatively more vis-a-vis -vis economics than, um, than in developed markets. But of course, as we're seeing nowadays, um, you've got uh, rapidly increasing importance of politics in, the, in Europe and um, in the United States. You talk about the, the Chinese currency, and, and I wonder sort of what your uh, outlook is for it here in the year ahead. You think it's not going to uh, perhaps weaken as much as, as, as others would. Uh, what, what's your outlook for the, uh, the, the offshore yuan this year? For, for the for for the Chinese, yes, yeah. Well, I, I think we're we're expecting it to go down a bit, but starting from where we are now, it's gone quite a long way. And you're looking at a country where um, uh, the you know the ruling Communist Party is most of all naturally inclined to try to control things, and they've um, particularly started to clamp down and try to control um, capital movements on a on a big scale, as you probably know. Um, and um, where uh, and they're going to want to preserve. Um, the, con the, the sort of confidence and, and general feeling of uh, good times, at least through the big Congress at the end of this year, which is the halfway mark for the current um, leadership in its in its ten-year its ten-year spell in power. The halfway mark is is this autumn. So, so on the whole, we think that the Chinese, um, you know, currencies is, is yeah. going, going to go down, not up, but it's not going to go down big time. Charles Dumas, thank you so much. Too short today with Lombard Street Research. Much to talk about. We'll come back with Charles Dumas uh, in the coming weeks on the Netherlands and the French election uh, as uh, well. I guess it is a passing of technological history. Marissa Mayer will exit Yahoo. Brian Weiser does detailed reports, and usually in the back, there's some form of discounted cash flow model. Brian Weiser joins us from Pivotal Research. Brian, in an October note, you slotted in one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine lines with a couple of plugins, and the mother of all plugins is what Verizon's going to pay for Yahoo. Is that the bombshell to come that Verizon is going to say, no, this is the new price? I think that's entirely plausible. I mean, it's, it's difficult to know with any precision whatsoever. Um, we don't know how much sure. uh, yeah. legal flexibility they have. Um, it, you know, it, but it, the, the thing from a Yahoo perspective and from a materiality perspective is it doesn't really matter very much. I mean, a billion here, a billion there, of course, pretty soon we're talking real money. But um, for the purposes of how one looks at the, the stock still presently known as Yahoo, it's pretty irrelevant. Okay, I'll go with that. And David, these numbers are important. David, I want you to jump in here. Weezer has the core business at $3.8 billion, and the value of Japan is in the vicinity of $6.8 billion. Mm. I mean, that gives you an idea of the, the stub of the Alibaba group is ginormous 29. So, so what, what, four, what? 
729. Wow. Yeah. Brian, what happens to that company? You have this spinoff largely charged with caring for uh, those shares of uh, of Alibaba and the the Yahoo Japan holdings. What's that company going to do? In other words, what would a director on that board be charged with doing here going forward? Good question. Yeah, that's yeah a good well, question. It, yeah. this is why it's been almost more surprising that anyone's been surprised or that there's been so much press about you know the 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 AK filed yesterday. The future entity is all about tax optimization and. That's where the value is created. It's not about operating anything. It's about um, being able to uh, identify advisors and assess a different uh, advice that they might provide in terms of uh, different ways to structure the assets. Um, and involves a lot of waiting around. <laughs> uh, I think that's probably the best way to characterize it. Um, anticipating, you know, all the research that one could do around what tax policies will be, I mean, which are obviously thrown up in greater flux now, um, is probably some of the most important work that anyone could theoretically do. Um, it, it's, not, it's, it's not a company anymore. It's not an operating business. I wonder sort of what the, the verdict is going to be here on Marissa Meyer. I remember hearing Mark Benioff of Salesforce on Bloomberg Television really praising her as an executive and as a leader. Uh, I wonder what her future looks like once she is extricated from uh, this company or these companies uh, after this sale is complete, once the deal is done. What happens to Marissa Meyer? Uh, that's a great question. Um, you know, I, I mean, I think there's a lot of people who try to be public company CEOs, and it, it, it doesn't always work out. And uh, um, here was a situation where you had someone elevated who wasn't particularly well prepared to run a large company, um, and um, you know that 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 yeah. this person will be very wealthy and able to do a lot of different things with you know her own mm -hmm. or possibly other people's money. But um, it, it's hard to imagine you know Wall Street would not be supportive. I would say uh, uh, it, it's hard to imagine. Wall Street being supportive of, of her in a future public company um, role. Um, I don't think they, they, they might have been supportive of her, right. uh, when this when she was put into this role because there was something of a star aura placed around her um, at the time. Um, and, and I don't know if you remember my notes at the time. I, I was just baffled that they put her in, yeah. in the job. Well, um, you've, you've got a star aura, too. Uh, uh, Brian, Brian, uh, this is outside your watch, but I'm going to try it anyways because I think it's something of interest to our listeners. Bloomberg Intelligence and John Butler, with their great work, have the EBITDA margin, the profit folks down the income statement, but before net income, it's 55 cents on the dollar for AT&T Wireless, or excuse me, Verizon Wireless, 47 cents on the dollar for AT&T, and the other two trail. Are the cell phone bills that we pay every month, are they just basically organized theft of a monopoly or duopoly or triopoly? I mean, those are stunning margins that Bloomberg Intelligence is calculating. Well, I'll throw this out. Um, you, you do need to be mindful of capital expenditures, uh, for starters. Um, knowing what the EBITDA of any given company is without knowing the CapEx is, is not a useful number. Um, and in a CapEx-intensive business, and this is true whether we're talking about the you know, MVPDs or the cable operators or we're talking about uh, wireless players, infrastructure providers, I mean, how are we counting for the uh, capital investment in, in towers and all sorts of equipment, um, subsidies that go into our um, handsets, et cetera? I, I don't cover the telco. Uh, space, so I, I don't, I can't opine as to whether they're high or low relative to where they should be, but um, but no, it's not a particularly meaningful number by itself. Okay.
Let me just ask you here, uh, returning to Yahoo, um, just sort of who will be on this board? I said six members are leaving, uh, none of them that well-known uh, to me. Who's going to remain here? Uh, and then also just a, a question sort of a tangent to that. Uh, what kind of due diligence is Verizon doing at this point? We've had these two big breaches. Word of these two big breaches. Uh, what is Verizon doing at this point? Yeah, well, I, I have to say I'm not particularly familiar with the uh, board members either. Yeah. Um, I mean, we do have, the, I think, believe the former CFO of uh, IAC is there, but it, it really is a, uh, optimally a board of, of, of financial uh, and tax professionals because ultimately that's the the, the skill set, if you will, that's required to assess um, the direction of the corporate entity. So there, there's that. Um, you know, to, to Verizon, um, you know, actually, interestingly, I, sh- I should note that going back to your question on the EBITDA, I mean, I, I, there's concerns around top-line growth in general for telcos because right. their legacy businesses of wireline phones is declining. Um, the wireless uh, services are not growing at a particularly robust pace, uh, if at all. Um, and I think there's been this view uh, that wa- that advertising uh, can be a, a growth driver given the data that exists and which isn't really being monetized to the degree that I think the carriers think it can be, can can make the advertising more valuable. Now, to be clear, this is a very optimistic view, <laughs> uh, willfully optimistic, one could even argue. Um, telcos around the world, from Singtel uh, to Telenor to Orange, um, have all uh, adhered to this strategy in one form or another. Baby steps, mostly. Verizon, arguably making the biggest steps with um, the, the the push to buy first AOL and mm-hmm. secondly the operating business of Yahoo. Um, now, will they um, be able to negotiate some kind of price reduction? Probably. How much? Yeah. Hard to say. Um, but ultimately, you know, will will they build a better business inside of AOL than AOL would have been on its own? Right. I think almost certainly. Yeah. It doesn't necessarily change the broader narrative or necessarily reduce your phone bill. Okay, we have to leave it there. Brian Weiser, thank you for the update, particularly there on Yahoo. Mr. Weiser is with Pivotal Research Group. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on iTunes, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm out on Twitter at Tom Keen. David Gura is at David Gura. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio. Brought to you by Bank of America, Merrill Lynch, dedicated to bringing our clients insights and solutions to meet the challenges of a transforming world. That's the power of global connections. Merrill Lynch, Pierce, Fenner & Smith, Incorporated member, SIPC.